the person who's gone through the trauma has to sort of relive it uh, by telling it and then not know exactly how the spouse is going to respond. Rather, they'll be supportive or uh, withdraw and, or maybe blame or feel like they read somebody who's damaged. So it takes a tremendous amount of guts, grit, and determination to even have a conversation if you're the person who's experienced a trauma. If you're the other person, the spouse, it's difficult too, because how much do you want to hear about other relationships or abuse that happened? Dear young married couple, you're in a busy season of your life. You're probably working and involved in ministry. On top of that, you might even be parents or students. You're Max, but you really want to stay connected in your marriage. And that's why we're bringing this podcast to you. I'm Adam King. And I'm Carissa King. And we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in Sacramento, California. We also work with couples all over the world through online counseling. And our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively. Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists, authors, pastors, and other couples who will pour into us, giving us tools to become more intimately connected, get adventurous, and find purpose. Welcome everyone to a new episode of Dear Young Married Couple. We are honored to have Dr. Daniel Blash with us here today. And we are talking about healing your intimacy after a history of trauma. And Dr. Daniel Blash is a perfect person to be speaking to this. He's a psychologist and a pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. So welcome, Dr. Blash. Thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thank you, both of you, and I'm very happy to have a chance to um, share some ideas. It'll be fun. Yeah, we chose this topic um, because we know that this is a very difficult subject to talk about. It's where people live, and we knew that you would be a perfect person to talk about it since you are a psychologist and you're a pastor, so you have a very unique voice um, for this topic. You know, I would agree. It's very important. Uh, I imagine that, you know, our apostolic couples, but couples in general, um, look for material that address physical intimacy and trauma and other areas of intimacy. Um, and when they come up, you know, they're excited to be able to see it or read it, but just, you know, day to day, it may not be a topic that comes up in the house. And it's certainly, uh, may not be a topic that comes up in the church. So it's good if we can provide some resources for um, folks that are coming from trusted um, sources about very sensitive issues that happen, um, you know, that all of us are involved in. Yes. Yeah. Well, we know you're a trusted resource here. Yeah. So let's, let's just jump off the deep end here and um, start off by maybe a definition of trauma, and then uh, maybe get into how it starts to affect a person and then, and then a marriage. Sure. Yeah. I would say um, when I think about trauma, I think about what it means. And then I think about uh, what it looks like. So um, let's talk about what I, what it means, at least in my mind. 
um, people become traumatized when they're exposed to some event um, or um, action that is outside of the normal operations of how they live their daily life. And to whatever degree it's far outside, to that degree you've got the potential for a traumatic experience. Um, and then I would further drill that down uh, to say that, you know, how uh, frequent they've experienced something that is way outside of their norm and then how intense it was at the time. Um, and the example I would give is, you know, there was research that looked at post-traumatic stress disorder and they found that children or uh, young people that grew up in maybe an inner city um, or uh, around guns, where there was shooting uh, involved and maybe they shot a gun, maybe they went hunting, or if they lived in the inner city, uh, like I do, they heard gunshots and they heard stories of people uh, being shot. Uh, well, those, those folks, when they joined the military, uh, people being shot and, and killed just wasn't too far outside of their norm. Uh, mm -hmm. They all, yeah. they knew someone who had experienced that or, and so the trauma for them wasn't as great as it would be for somebody who's never experienced violence or never been around guns. Um, so it just wasn't that far outside of their norm. So mm -hmm. that's how I would define trauma. And then in terms of what it looks like, um, imagine a large object falling uh, from a far distance into a small body of water. Um, if you want a visual that that will cause you not to want to eat dinner, imagine me doing the cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, that's an appetite suppressant right there. <laughs> and then that, that, that place where the impact is, the, the waves and, and the, uh, the impact is, the disturbance is, is traumatic. It's, it's very easy to see. But if you take your time and watch, the entire body of water begins to uh, form ripples. And at the very end edge of that body of water, those ripples are going to be smaller, but they're going to be there. And that's what trauma looks like there's going to be a major impact somewhere that you'll be able to point to maybe the date, the time, uh, you know, the, the, the episode of what happened. And then there are going to be these ripple effects that touch the other areas of your life that you may not recognize right away. But over time, you might recognize that, yeah, I was impacted in many areas over this one trauma. Mm. That's such a good visual. Yeah. I mean, the way you described it, it is, um, I think those ripple effects are what people don't realize are still impacting them years down the road, decades down the road. What are some of the typical traumas that you see both as a pastor and then as a psychologist in your practice? You know, um, I see traumas across all um, what I would call domains of intimacy and, and I would break those down into five categories um, that I think these five categories make up what I call the pillars of marriage. But they're, they're all areas of intimacy and they all can have trauma. Uh, the, the first area is social intimacy, uh, people you know, enjoying each other's company. 
the, the second area is emotional intimacy, uh, you know, sharing ideas and secrets and fears and dreams and hopes. The third area is spiritual intimacy, and that's about deeply knowing uh, a person. Uh, the fourth area is financial intimacy, and then uh, that's about agreement. And the fifth area is physical intimacy. And so in any of these areas, um, you can see trauma. And what I, what I saw after many years of working with uh, precious people was that the couples that had these five areas intact never divorced. Uh, I mean, never. I don't mean rarely. I mean, never. Uh, these five hmm. areas, if they were intact and maintained, um, they just did really, really well. And so over time, uh, no matter what the problem was, I would just address these five areas, get those in good shape, and the, the relationship would begin to come together uh, no matter what the problem was. So I've seen trauma in all those areas. Um, it relates specifically to the final area, the area of physical intimacy. Um, I would say most of what I've uh, seen and dealt with were um, intimacy issues that came from uh, relationships when maybe people were single. So prior to getting married, um, any sort of intimacy that was physical, uh, where there was trauma or a breakup. I mean, you can just imagine that a person gives away a lot uh, when they're physically intimate before marriage. If they don't marry that person, then, you know, their heart's broken at the very least. Um, mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of that. And I would probably put that at the top. Um, and then I would say second, in terms of frequency, um, both in the church and in the practice, uh, would be traumas that happen um, after, after marriage. Um, and, and that list is just incredibly long of the things can happen. I guess the, the third thing, and this is um, worth mentioning because it's such a sneaky little thing, um, are the small traumas that don't amount to a crisis but build up over time. Um, mm. It could be losing maybe two parents um, at once. I know that's not physical intimacy, uh, but that's a little thing that, well, it's not a little thing, but that's a thing. And then maybe there's a job loss and maybe there's, well, apply that to physical intimacy. These, these traumas that they're not debilitating on their own, but over time they stack up. And uh, I've seen that that would probably be the third most common um, area of trauma in, in working with people. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. That's, the way that you categorize that that third item is, you know, yeah. you said small traumas, but really I think what I'm hearing is losses. So anytime there's a loss, um, that can build up to that um, escalating trauma that can then impact the relationship and, and the physical intimacy. Absolutely. Um, you know, when people have breakdowns, rather it's they have a, a nervous kind of breakdown, so to speak, or, or they just, they abandon God or they abandon their family. It looks like an event, but really it's a series of events. Um, mm -hmm. And that last one was just a big one that you could see. That's the cumulative effect of trauma. Um, and again, if you bring that into the physical intimacy, there's, uh, it looks a little different, but the, the, the 
the idea of a cumulative effect is still there. It's very powerful. In talking about how trauma affects a person, you said, you know, how far outside the norm is kind of dictates how it hits someone. But what about how the person makes meaning from that event? How much does that play into the equation? It's huge. Um, you know, one of the most embarrassing stories, um, and this happened in a clinical practice, and the, uh, the person that happened to uh, wrote it out as a testimony. Um, so it's, 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 um, it's, it's public somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly her church in, in, in her city, uh, people would, would recognize the story from maybe 20 years ago. So it's, it's an old story, but it's an embarrassing moment for me personally. Um, this was a, uh, a young person who was engaged to be married and uh, unbeknownst to her was also being stalked by a neighbor um, who, who got into her home, um, made it till she came home. She lived by herself. Um, and just did awful things to her. Um, the, the consequences of, of that act of sexual violence outlasted the moment. Um, there were physical consequences, emotional consequences. Um, it was just, it was a worst case scenario. It's the kind of things you read about. And, and when you're reading about psychopaths, um, it, you know, and he did, he left her for dead and she just didn't die. Um, mm -hmm. But when she said, told me her story, and you, you and I heard the details, um, yeah. it just you know your blood boils because this was somebody who was in the church. So you know there you just you just feel very close to that sort of a situation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Protective. Her, her exactly. Her response was, "God taught me the greatest lesson of forgiveness through this scenario," and I sat there stunned. Uh, and feeling like an idiot because uh, her perspective was emotionally at a place where I wasn't even. Um, mm. And there's no way she got there with, with human uh, wisdom. Um, that came through some prayer and some reflection. Uh, and she had come to a place to forgive the unforgivable. Um, so her, her outlook, um, the most tragic thing maybe that can happen to a person completely changed her, her future. And what was beautiful about this is she just simply refused to let someone ruin her present and her future. Um, so, uh, Brother, Brother King, the, you're absolutely right. The, the outlook uh, and how people manage through trauma is crucial. And I gave you one of the most extreme cases to kind of juxtapose with what other people may go through uh, to say it's possible. So for someone who's listening, that's, you know, holding on to something um, that really truly happened to you, that wasn't your fault, that um, you didn't ask for, um, you know, and, and, and humanistic thinking, you've got every right to hold that thing close to you and just be angry and bitter and hurt forever. Um, but I'm telling you, there's an option. There is an option. Um, and, and that's having a, another perspective and, and letting God do something supernatural that supersedes your human uh, ability to even mm. go there. Um, yeah. I heard you say something, I think that 
it's very important um, that I'd like you to comment on holding on to something. Like, how does this, what, I mean, people know that they're holding on to things, but how does this play out? And then maybe how can they work toward letting go of it? Hey friends, we'll be right back to our interview, but one quick note, if you love what you're listening to, you might also enjoy going through our card decks that we designed to help couples stay connected and in each other's world. So there's Foundations, which is our starter deck, and it's all about boosting your communication skills. And then there's Sexpectations, which is all about spicing up your intimate connection. And then there's Realizations, which is a deck for all couples, but especially dating or engaged couples who want to see how well they really know each other. So grab a deck or two, or three, by heading over to our website, dearyoungmarriedcouple.com slash cards. All right, back to the show. Probably the most salient um, um, thing I, or case I can remember uh, is a lady that had suffered so much. And I won't go into great detail because I've, I've said this in other settings um, and it's got some humor to it, but um, she just had suffered so much through life losses. Um, I think she had buried one or two children, uh, a husband, maybe two, um, had gone through some economic hardships, had gotten older not as healthy, um, you know, just just uh, a lot of negatives. And for her, she built um, an emotional room in her house and her mind for all those hurts and held on to them the way you might imagine someone puts a picture of their loved one on the refrigerator so that they see it and they cherish it and they make space for that thing or that person. She made space just like that. Um, Dedicated, you know, there was anniversaries of hurts and she would remember them. I mean, so it's possible for people to build, um, build space and how that showed up for her is it killed her worship. Um, It just completely killed her worship, she brought those, those weights into service with her. And they just, they were too heavy for the arms to be raised in worship. They were too heavy for the legs to leap with joy. And, and, and so her pastor's comment to me was, I've not seen her move in 35 years, pestering her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. So it, it can manifest itself in, in heaviness, be it spiritual heaviness or physical heaviness depression, oppression, things of that nature. Um, and it takes, it just sucks the joy out of you until there's nothing left. Um, and that's all um, completely, uh, you know, opposite of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God. So it yeah. does just yeah. the opposite. Um, and, and it plays out like that in many other ways it plays out uh, as well. Yeah, wow. I have a question pertaining to the supporting spouse of somebody who has experienced childhood trauma. You mentioned the three areas, um, so sexual things that have happened before marriage, uh, things that have happened to affect that physical intimacy with your spouse after marriage, and then uh, the small traumas that build up. Um, So back to that first one, if somebody has experienced a sexual trauma before marriage and it starts to impact the marriage in all of these areas of intimacy, but specifically their sexual intimacy, how can a supporting partner respond in a way that's helpful and not harmful? 
That's a great question, and I hope I can remember it uh, because I want to step back just a little bit and acknowledge how difficult it is for uh, the person who's been uh, experienced trauma and the spouse to even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the trauma happened before marriage, then, um, you know, imagine that conversation. So um, the, the person who's gone through the trauma has to sort of relive it uh, by telling it and then not know exactly how the spouse is going to respond. Rather, they'll be supportive or uh, withdraw and, or maybe blame or feel like they read somebody who's damaged. So it takes a a tremendous amount of guts, grit, and determination to even have conversation if you're the person who's experienced a trauma. If you're the other person, the spouse, uh, it's difficult too, because how much do you want to hear about other relationships or abuse that happened um, in in that situation? So um, I I would encourage the person who has been um, experience trauma to be mindful and careful and deliberate about how they share that with their spouse. Um, and then I would encourage the spouse to just kind of dedicate themselves to at least 24 hours um, before they respond. <laughs> other than other than just the basic, you know, uh, loving encouragement. But okay. To really kind of breathe and think about it because their words are going to carry a lot of weight because the person's been incredibly vulnerable. Um, and if you're a spouse and you're hearing it for the first time, you just may not be in the best place to have a lot of words that, that you know, you can say that you've thought through. Um, so I would start with that. I think stepping back for 12 to 24 hours is one of the most uh, mindful things you can do. Um, and then on purpose, re-enter that conversation uh, with, you know, how, how can, what do I need to do to, um, to be a, a supportive part uh, for you right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and let the person tell you what they need. And if they don't know what they need, that's okay. Give them time. Uh, but to let them tell you what they need so that you don't have to guess and get it wrong um, or make it worse. Um, you know, if you guess, well, they, they, I should be supportive and talk about this at least weekly um, so that I'm showing my support. That could be exactly the wrong thing to do. It, the, the problems come up, and I think they're connected to three areas of memory. Um, I think they're connected to what's called episodic memory, and it is exactly what it sounds like, an episode that you would remember, so episodic memory. I think it's connected to iconic memory, uh, and that has to do with visual memory, and it's connected to echoic memory, uh, and that has to do with what you hear. It could also be connected to an olfactory memory, and that would have to do with what you smell um, and, and so a person who's gone through a trauma um, might very well remember the details of that trauma down to the odors in the room, the, the touches, the, the, the whatever it was. They might remember every little detail and the, the, the spouse 
um, who's not been traumatized, but who's married to someone who has, may stumble kind of upon um, an area that provides a trigger. Um, right. And so now the person who, who's been through trauma hears the same language or smells the same smells or um, experiences a moment of, of, of panic or fear or anxiety, just like they did during the trauma. Um, and it shuts intimacy down and it causes all sorts of problems. And, and nobody knows how to handle it in the moment. Um, so, you know, those are the areas where I see it coming up. Uh, people will say that, you know, well, he just touched me in a certain way and I went berserk. Um, or I lost it or I started crying. And the, the spouse was going, I, I, what did I do? I was just mm -hmm. being loving and kind. Yep. So those are the ways I see coming up. And then I talk to couples about those uh, areas of memory, the episodic, the iconic, the echoic, and sometimes the olfactory, depending upon what they tell me. But those are usually the things that at play in trauma uh, and they get revisited, unfortunately, um, you know, in, in day-to-day -day life. Right. Because I guess we're talking about intimacy or you kind of alluded to that in your example where you could kind of go through your life and we don't, I mean, just normal everyday it, you know, happenings is not a really a trauma, but for us outside the norm is that, you know, if somebody abuses us, they touch us in places that only our future spouse will. And so when our future spouse does it the same way or triggers them, they're taken back there. Mm -hmm. So how do you unlink it for them? Or what does the process look like to help them start unlinking that, that trigger and making it more, this is my spouse who loves me and is not doing this in a you know, harmful manner? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful you used the word link uh, because... If the behavior is, is uh, maybe they were touched in a certain way and that happens and that was inappropriate um, at one point, but now they're, they're married and it's appropriate, but it triggers. You're absolutely right. There's, those things are linked. So think about the, the person who's been traumatized. The, that first touch, which was perversion and, uh, and abusive, has been squarely put in the category of wrong, bad, sinful, ugly, um, run away from it. And now they've got to take that same touch and they've got to put it in the category of good, appropriate, loving. And that mental gymnastic is exhausting and almost impossible to do right away. So, and it's instantaneous too. That's what you're asking them to do. Like jump over this wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, right now. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so this is, this is why I think there are two things that are super important to deal with this. They're super important. Number one is premarital counseling. Um, premarital counseling. Uh, the, the way I do it uh, is I typically would get a book or the couple, I would say, go, go, go pick out a book, get a good Christian premarital counseling book. They're about all the same. And then I take that book and I, I apostolicize it. Um, <laughs> I do. I go through each chapter and I, I put all the apostolic principles that the author didn't put in there that need to be put in there 
I put them all in there so that we've talked about these, these issues. So premarital counseling has the opportunity to begin to unsurface some of these conversations and begin at least to talk about it and give people language to begin to have these conversations in a safe um, referee environment uh, where they can, you know, the pressure is not on yet because it's premarital counseling, which should mean pre-sexual relationship. Um, You know, so the pressure isn't on. That's number one. Number two is the wedding ceremony. The, uh, Brother Adam, this is it. This is how you disconnect them. This is how you unlink those two things. The wedding ceremony has to be so sacred. You've got to think of it like baptism. When you are baptized, the old man dies, and, and you purposely put that thing under. It's gone. And we talk about it in the past tense. Um, and we keep it under the blood and we keep it buried and the new man arises. That's how the wedding has to be looked at. Forget all the flowers and the frou-frou stuff, <laughs> stuff and all that. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, let somebody else handle that. But somebody needs to make that such a holy ceremony that the old, the singleness and everything that was connected to it that can be buried gets buried. Um, and these two then become one, it's new, it's, you know, there's got to be that delineating line um, that separates what was and what is. And, and so I treat that marriage ceremony like a baptism ceremony. You go down, you're coming up different. And so you come to this altar as two people with past and you've got trauma and you've got all these things. You didn't. You weren't fighting together before, but you're going to get married, and that union is going to be blessed by God, and something special happens in that blessing, akin to baptism. It's it's hard to describe so because it's good. a ceremony, mm. but something happens that that then separates the old from the new, and now that touch can ease more easily be categorized as holy. And the other one can be categorized as profane. And, and, and that's biblical. Now we're in the Bible. Um, and so we language it that way. We think of it that way. And over time, it becomes that way. So that that touch that could be an awful trigger becomes something that's wonderful and holy and sacred. And, and so those are the two things that I would say, the premarital counseling and that wedding ceremony. It's beautiful. That is so good. I, I love how you've structured that, that approach to treatment. <laughs> now, uh, how would you approach treatment for somebody? Um, and I have multiple clients where this has been the case in some form or another, but where, where they look at uh, their prior circumstances, their premarital sexual interactions, um, whether it was abusive or whether they um, it was consensual. And they actually go to those memories for fantasy purposes. Um, and so, you know, it's difficult for them to even think of them as profane, uh, or if they do, it's not, it's not, um, categorized the way that would be helpful for them in their marriage. And so, uh, even years down the road, it's still something that's impacting them in that, um, love hate relationship. How do you, how do you approach that? You know, um, I have a thought, maybe a saying, 
that not everything we feel is valid, um, mm -hmm. but we can feel it. Um, you know, just because you can feel it doesn't mean that it's, it's a valid thing. Um, and, and so the example could be someone that, uh, you know, they, they, maybe they, they, um, maybe they were, they were not in church. Maybe they were involved in a consensual relationship. Um, and that's what they knew as love. Um, now, that can't be the fullness of love because the fullness of love can't, isn't possible outside of God. But it would probably be a mistake to say, well, you didn't love that person. Um, you, you know, because they're going to say, no, I did. I felt love for them. And they assume that everything they feel is legitimate. And, and, and because they felt it, it's real. And because it's real, in the moment, God blesses somehow the genuineness of that, and and so they sanctify it. Um, but but it's not sanctified. There has to be a place in the experience of the believer that we look back at our life before Christ, and even the things that would have been categorized as good, we realize that God. The real question is: Is this something you could have blessed? not how did I feel about it um, and, and so we have to categorize that because you can have a plethora of feelings and they just be off but you felt them I mean, right. you know and so I don't usually try and challenge people about what they did or did not feel because they may have felt um, something I mean there have been times where I felt anger but it wasn't right but I felt right. it um, I have to categorize that in such a way that um, that's not something that God can bless. And yes, I felt it in the moment I did. And you're not going to tell me I did it because I did. But if I look back on it, that was in a, um, an, just a state of, of godlessness. And, and I can't glorify that. You know, having said that, that person that really struggles with going back and kind of um, fantasizing or maybe even idealizing what was, um, that's very dangerous. I, I remember a man who talked about being delivered from alcohol and, and I was happy to hear his testimony, but when he would tell stories of his drunkenness, he would do it with a smile. And I always, I, I always, I shook my head and said, something is not right with that. He doesn't realize that 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 temporary high was not of God. He's going to look back with that and have a heart of regret. Um, and so he's going to have to wrestle with that. And that's the same thing for people that have had sexual experiences outside of the confines of the Bible. You've got to look back that, at that thing, categorize it as sin, and then feel accordingly. Um, and that takes, it, it can take some time, uh, but, but in a moment, if you give me a chance, I'm going to talk about what happens at the altar and how this is possible uh, for us to, to make these transitions that Paul would really call renewing of the mind, uh, mm. but how that's mm. possible practically. Um, Share please. with us, how is that possible practically and renewing the mind? So I believe that um, let's take the single person who's just fighting the, the battles of life. 
Um, built into every encounter with God is an element of healing. It's there. He is the God that healeth me. When? How? Not just when we're sick, um, but as we go out in this world and we have bumps and bruises of life, we come into worship and we get to the altar and in the conversations with God, in the communion with God, there is healing for the individual. That same healing is there for couples. And, it, and so when couples are communing with God together at the altar uh, or in worship together, the byproduct, one of the byproducts is there's a healing. And I would consider this like a spiritual shower that just kind of with, with, with healing solution in it every single time. And it's not the kind of healing that resolves the problem fully overnight. It's the kind of healing that deals with the day-to-day -day bumps and bruises so they don't compound over time. And that's how we can then have the courage and kind of the spiritual fortitude to have that transition of mind because we're being healed every single service and we can have service in our home. Um, so there's a constant flow of healing in the spirit of God built in for his children. Um, it to, to the, so much so that people who have a totally wrecked relationship and no marital counseling, but become very faithful to God and worship him and, and come to the altar, God will be able to, he'll start healing them. And I'm, I'm showing you like a healing from the surface, but it's not that way. It's from the inside and it's layer by layer by layer. Now they're going to be blessed and they'll go faster if they get help. But if they got no help, and they were just faithful to the things of God, day by day, a little more healing would come. And we need that because this life will cause lots of bumps and bruises. That is beautiful. So we've talked a lot about traumas that can occur prior to marriage. What about those folks who are in their marriage, they're in the thick of the journey, and they feel like trauma is taking place right now? How do you connect with that person in terms of treatment? Yeah, um, you know, I've seen this quite a bit, and um, there are times when it's it's not in their mind. Uh, it, there really there really is trauma happening, and typically, what's going on is um, there's some small annoyance that hasn't been resolved, and it's built to a place where um, now it's traumatizing. Um, but I've seen other situations where there's been abuse. Um, and the abuse was happening live and uh, it was going on. For those situations, they're very different than what we've been talking about because up until this point, we've not said, stop, you know, don't, don't move any further, get help. Um, but this is a situation that if it's ongoing um, and you, have you can identify it, this is when I would say stop and, and let's get help. Look at the resources you have in your local church. Um, look at the resources that are godly that may be beyond your local church um, and get help. And there are many ways to do this because, you know, um, not everyone's going to just, just run into the counselor's office. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, yeah. You know, because they, they've got someone where they're guaranteed confidentiality, which is rare outside of these spaces. Um, and people with expertise. So that would be a nice first stop. But for many people, and, and I guess my experience, well, I don't guess, I, I know my experience has been, it's the men. 
that may not be prone to do that as first stop. Um, You know, so I've had to develop ways to kind of engage the husbands um, and and that didn't involve therapy right away. Um, And I've done that with short readings, um, find ways to do short readings, big long books. Um, If I've got a big long book, I'll photocopy a chapter and ask them to read half of it. Uh, you know, just to get them on step one. The other thing that I've done in the past is said, also, let's connect you to a mentor in your church. And it, it, uh, many, again, you get the, I don't want it to be my pastor. I don't want to go see the pastor kind of deal. Um, and that's mm-hmm. a problem. Eventually you might want to get them to that, but if they won't go, what's the next step? And that mentor could be a nice next step. Somebody Look around your body of Christ. Find someone you think they've got a pretty good marriage going on and just have coffee. Uh, This isn't counseling because they're not professionals, but have coffee and start the conversation. That's step one. Step three, by step three, we're getting into more professional arenas because we're talking about active uh, um, trauma or active abuse. And we want to, we want to, um, infuse that situation with new blood. Think of somebody who is in the hospital, they're very sick and they've, they've, they've lost blood and they need a transfusion. They need new blood into the system. That's what getting help is like. You know, at some point you just can't keep recycling the same old blood, husband, wife, husband, wife, husband, wife, husband, wife, adding that third or fourth person in, it adds new blood. New blood is life. So it adds new life to this dynamic and it gives you a better chance of survival. And so here's what we should do. In my mind, we take those couples who have been um, uh, instrumental at mentoring other couples and we treat them like they're valuable blood donors because they're doing the same service. Um, and, and, you know, they need to come back around and say, you know, this is my one year anniversary from the blood transfusion you gave me. You pumped new life into our marriage. Here we are year number 10. And some of your DNA is in me because you, I mean, that's how valuable this is. Um, and you know, I can't let this go because ultimately, ultimately the awesome, the most awesome blood transfusion. I mean, that's from Jesus, right? And I mean, ultimately, that's what we all need. So uh, and so we, we do that. And so as humans, mm-hmm. that's how we practically do that. Um, mm-hmm. And there are many uh, examples in the Bible that language this. We're bearing each other's burdens. We're caring for each other. We're brotherly love. We're teaching uh, the younger. There are many places in the Bible that characterize what I'm describing outside of medical terminology. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a revelation moment right there. I felt it too. Dr. Blash, before we do our Dear Young Married Couple letter, what are some book recommendations that you have for the listeners, whether it has to do with trauma or supporting your spouse through trauma? I will say that books that help you understand the, 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 the psyche, the mentality of your spouse all his needs, her needs, things like that. Um, all of those sorts of books, uh, or many of those sorts of books, are going to give you some basic tools for navigating 
difficult conversations. And that's what this is about. So um, instead of if you're out there and you're like, we've got this big trauma and I, I would love to have a book to help me get through it. I would encourage you to get a great book on communication uh, because you're going to talk your way through it. You're not going to counsel your way through it. You're going to talk your way through it. And a book on communication probably is a great starting place, um, you know, to, to move in that direction. And then if you want to know more, you can dive deeper into the subject. All right. So we end every podcast with a Dear Young Married Couple letter. And the way we do that is we ask you to rewind to the first few years of your marriage and think about the advice that you wish you would have received. And then you'll just fill in the blank, dear young married couple. So dear young married couple. Um, wow. Where do I start with you? Um, what I wish I would have known or heard um, or done, uh, I would say would have to do with the importance of being in and being involved in the house of God together um, and the importance of growing together. Um, in, in some areas, this is so intuitive, but in other areas, because ministries develop and we have different interests, we can quickly grow um, in ways that are not together um, and that becomes habitual over time. Um, I would say that would be maybe at the top of the list. And it's taken some time, some years to kind of figure that out, that it's important. No, it's vital that we grow and it's crucial that we grow together. Um, that, that would be huge. Um, the other thing is having people in your life who can speak into your life um, and, and nourish that not like a commanding voice. Sometimes that, that's necessary, but it's rare, but a nourishing voice. Mm -hmm. And I want to give an example of this. Um, I was a very young dad and uh, very young. Uh, and then right away, we had not just one, but two children. Um, during that time, we attended a Bible study every Friday night um, at, a, at a, a couple's home. They were in their 50s. Uh, late 50s, and they were teaching all of us young marrieds. Um, and every Friday night, the mom, the, that wife of that, that uh, home, would stand at the door and greet all of us as we left. And she would say, Daniel, you're a great dad. Um, and I heard that for the first year. I don't think I rolled my eyes, but I probably did. Um, but, but by the end of the first year, I was believing it. And by the end of the second year, I knew it was true. Um, wow. that, that's what I mean by nurturing, um, uh, you know, to have those people that nurture you. Um, and, and then finally, um, what I would say to your young couples is, um, there is nobody like your pastor. Um, mm -hmm. there's just nobody like your pastor. You're blessed if you can find a place where you can love and be loved by your pastor. Um, and those are some things that I, I learned over time and I wish I would have known at the beginning. Oh, well, thank you so, so much for all the wisdom. There's so much here and uh, you're such an amazing thinker. You're a deep thinker. And I, I just love all the numbers. Like there's three things, there's five things like <laughs> 
that speaks to me. Yeah. And, and uh, if, if awesome. folks are listening and you didn't take notes, re-listen to this episode <laughs> and take notes. Yeah. And I know this is going to minister to a lot of people. So th- thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, uh, to talk with us today. It's my pleasure. And hopefully we can do this again sometime soon down the road. Absolutely. Yes. We love and appreciate Amen. you. We love you guys. Love you. All right. God bless. All right, friends. We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dearyoungmarriedcouple.com. No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us in conversation there. All right. See you next week.